Good morning, Scott Strazenti. Welcome on VH Berries. Hey, Victor. How you doing? So good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I wanted to thank you uh, for your contribution uh, to documenting today's world through your photograph, having an impact on culture and society. Well, thank you. Appreciate uh, you noticing. <laughs> There is a legend that says that the terabyte uh, storage unit was invented to be able to store the thousands of photos that Scott has taken <laughs> since 1964. <laughs> I think we're going to need more than a terabyte. So I, uh, there's a, I definitely am not shy with taking a lot of photographs. I'll tell you that much. Do you have a first memory of your first photograph? Oh, yeah. When I was... Um, probably uh, maybe nine or 10 years old. It was part of each summer, my family, we would get in our station wagon. It'd be me and my parents, my two sisters, and uh, my mom's two parents, the seven of us, would get in the car and we would drive on a two-week vacation every summer. And it was some of the best memories I've ever had. And, you know, I think I'm a photographer because I spent so much time looking out of a window in America. And my dad was not a very good photographer, but he did enjoy doing uh, Super 8 movies of us on vacation. And he also had a, a Canon AE-1 film camera. And at some point, um, he started doing more video of our family vacations and I would borrow his camera. And um, I was shy and scared of people. So I think almost all my first photographs were of inanimate objects. And I don't remember what my first photograph was, but I do remember I started taking it to sporting events in Chicago and photographing Chicago Cubs games or Chicago Bears games from the seats that we had. We were big, avid sports fans. So for you, Scott Strazenti, taking pictures was a way to, instead talking, to express yourself. Yeah, definitely. I was a third child and I, I kind of felt like, you know, my sisters took up all the oxygen in the room and, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, but when I realized that I actually had a little bit of talent in photography. It was a way to get people's attention and, you know, try to get my parents' attention. And, and so it definitely was something that, you know, I kind of used as my voice because I was too shy to speak, I think. In fact, I notice that you have a unique relationship with danger. You don't uh, just only take uh, incredible abstract pictures with the oceans with a low uh, sure speed. Uh, you also uh, find yourself taking pictures in the hearth of Californian wildfires. Yeah, um, I spent the first 50 years of my life in Chicago. And um, back then I was fascinated with tornadoes and, and I never photographed a tornado. Um, but I was always dreaming about it. I would have nightmares or anxiety dreams about a tornado approaching and I didn't have a camera or there were no film in my, uh, my camera or the lens fell off or something. And so when I got to California and photographing wildfires is part of a photojournalist job out here, I was scared. Like I, would get, I would stay up all night and be anxious when I thought there was going to be wildfire coming. And, um, when I would head out to a wildfire, my first couple of them, I was just so timid. And, and, and in California, as a member of the media, you're allowed to go across blockades and, and, and police lines to photograph the wildfires. You can just go right up to the fire if you want. They always say, okay, be safe. Good luck, you know, and, and so, 
after six years of photographing wildfires, I think the last two have actually become comfortable. And they really are the most incredible forces of nature. And, and when you're near one, you can just feel them coming. It's like you can feel the weather change. And um, I think the most incredible thing I've ever photographed in my life was the campfire, which leveled the town of Paradise, California, a couple of years ago. And I got there shortly after the fire had passed through. And I was one of the few people in town as every building in town was on fire. And there were no firefighters around. You know, it was the most eerie, bizarre thing I've ever felt. So, you know, I, I still just get kind of you know, goosebumps thinking about covering wildfires and, and the images are, are amazing. And, and it seems this past year, I've really started to, um, pho photograph and, and concentrate on the effects on nature and wildlife. And, and this past fire season, um, I photographed, uh, you know, a lot of livestock, but also deer, you know, kind of as they're being affected by the wildlife because they don't have the ability to evacuate like the, the people do. And, and so each year I feel like I am more prepared psychologically and, and photographically to fire, um, to cover the wildfires, but it is the most incredible, scary thing that, that I've ever encountered in my photographic career for sure. And Scott, during this very special operation, are you wearing masks? Do you have a special equipment? Well, the one thing we do have is to get past the fire line, you have to be wearing um, the same um, outfit that a firefighter wears. And so it's just a pair of pants and a jacket and a helmet and goggles. And, you know, in, you know and, and some people wear masks or, you know, gas masks because um, the wildfire fire smoke is very toxic. And, and so when I first started out, you know, I, I, I was, you know, a little less prepared, but now, you know, I look just like any other firefighter would. Um, but I do, you know, at times, you know, the, the pandemic started, so it became more, you know, everyone was wearing a mask, but before that there was almost this kind of macho thing where no firefighters wear masks and you kind of felt this pressure to fit in, you know, to not wear a mask, to kind of breathe in that wild smoke, fire smoke, like that was some kind of, you know, thing to do that made you cool or something. But, but luckily, I think one of the few positive things from the pandemic was that now you have to wear a mask. And so I don't have to pretend like I'm some cool guy, you know, I can actually protect my lungs instead of, you know, trying to impress the firefighters, which is kind of really pretty stupid to start out with. And in another category, even at the age of a basketball court, you always have a risk of getting a lost ball hit in the face. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. It's like, I think one of the, the only two times I've been injured on the job were photographing basketball games. And they were both, they were both errant passes that hit the front of my camera. And then on each camera, there's a, a, a little metal thing where you put a flash in. And both times, the uh, metal thing hit me right above the nose. And one is on this side and one's on this side. I have two kind of matching scars. And, you know, I was photographing a, a Warriors game. This was the second time I got hit in the face. And just like blood was pouring down my face. And I was just like, wait, I got to photograph the game. And so then they kind of, some paramedic took me over behind the stands and they, they put a big bandage on my face and then I continued to shoot the game. And, um, but it is a little embarrassing. And, you know, when, you know, we usually, you know, 
wounds to the head bleed a lot. And, you know, so it, it was not a, a pretty looking scene, but, you know, that, that likes the only wounds I have from photography over the years, you know, shooting wildfires or, you know, floods or natural disasters. I've been fine, but, you know, shooting a basketball game is when I get injured usually. Absolutely. Because every time I saw some clips of basketball, basketball games, they're always photographers so close, uh, of, uh, the field. This is very, very impressive. Yeah, it's like, actually, you know, I, I don't ever think about it while I'm doing it, but covering professional sports can be dangerous. Baseball games, you know, you're, you know, except for now with the pandemic where we're up in the stands, but before that, you know, line drive baseballs are whizzing by your head or in football, you know, there's very likely that a linebacker is going to come flying off the field and roll you over. So there have been some instances with other photographers, not me, luckily, you know, getting head, getting hit in the head with a baseball line drive and being severely injured or, or um, you know, people getting run over by football players. One of the most incredible stories was maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, a photographer in San Francisco got run over by a football player and they, they went in, um, did just a, a, a check of his, you know, I think they did an MRI or something and they discovered a brain tumor. So getting run over by this football player ended up saving his life because they discovered a brain tumor that they then were able to have surgery on. So, you know, so it is kind of an interesting life, you know, as a, as a sports photographer, because you are right there in the action, but those are where the best photographs are made. So you kind of have to deal with the risks. In your career, 2001 rhymes with the Chicago Tribune, a daily newspaper that you have stepped into. Looking back, how have you lived this year and this new chapter in your life? So before I got to the Chicago Tribune, I was working at a small newspaper in Joliet, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And um, I had just started to become very successful and I won a major award, National Newspaper Photographer of the Year Award. And at that point, I really, you know, You know, I was excited to kind of move on to a bigger newspaper, um, but I really enjoyed photographing small communities and, and photographing daily life. Um, but then on 9-11, um, I remember working in Joliet and, you know, and this is very selfish and, but in, for my career, I remember that I felt like I was missing out, like I, I had more to offer the world than than just being in one small community because I wanted to go to New York or, or go to Washington, D.C. And, and photograph the events there. And um, I think the day after 9-11 in Joliet, I was photographing a, a, a man who had built a, a Lego model of a baseball stadium. And I was just like, what? What? Who cares? Why is this important? You know, and and. You know, I know that that was a little bit of an overreaction, but that was one of the main things that led me to move to the Chicago Tribune because then I knew that my voice would be amplified and I'd be able to travel more and I'd be able to shoot Olympic games or I would be able to do a story where I went to Bulgaria or Hungary. You know, just things where I was able to kind of tell bigger stories and use the talent I've been given, you know, to kind of you know, get my work out there more than just to a small community. But I still do fondly think back on those days as a small community newspaper. And, and there are great advantages to that. But I do really enjoy look, working at large metropolitan newspapers and, and getting my work to a bigger audience for sure. So you wanted to have a bigger impact. And during this chapter in 2007, as a member of the Chicago Tribune staff, you managed to win a Pulitzer Prize. 
Yeah, you know, that was a great honor. I was part of a team. Um, the, the, the story was, um, on defective toys and, and children's like cribs and things that were killing children. And, and one of the, um, children I photographed, there used to be these things called magnetics, which were these little toys where, um, they were just kind of little magnets that went together and they had little, magnet balls in them and and sometimes the the plastic that the metal the magnetic balls were in would fall apart and children would you know like most kids do they would stick these metal balls in their mouth and someone accidentally swallow them and they were such strong magnets magnets that they would go down into their intestines and they would kind of block the children's intestines and and several children died from this and I photographed one child who who had to have major surgery to to prevent a death and and so it was really, um, you know, just kind of following the reporter, um, and, and photographing the people that she interviewed. And, um, you know, I, you know, I, I started, um, putting Pulitzer Prize winner on my, my resume, you know, probably three or four years after I won it because, at the time, I didn't consider it my Pulitzer Prize. You know, the, for me, a Pulitzer Prize is an individual photographer, you know, winning it for just their their individual work. And and as part of a team, I thought, you know, yeah, I was proud of having that on my resume, but I didn't feel like it was something that I needed to shout to the world because I felt that it was, you know, maybe a little, you know, disingenuous to, to say I'm a Pulitzer Prize winner when really I, it was just not not my best work. It was good work, but it just happened to be attached to amazing work by a writer. But then a couple years after that, I, I kind of realized this is actually a good way to give entree to my other work is because people, when they see Pulitzer Prize, they're all like, wow, you know, they're super impressed. Um, but it's like, you know, I'm a little bit shy about it because, you know, I, I, I don't even have any photos from that Pulitzer Prize to even show. I don't even remember where they went. Um, but, um, I do feel that it is a way where if people say, oh, this is the Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, let me see what his work is, then they can see my other work, the work I'm really proud of. And that's something where I think it's a great bonus. And, um, but also, you know, in, in the place I live now, Mill Valley, California, um, it's, it's also helps when I'm trying to do portraits of, you know, a woman I do yoga with where, you know, it gives me instant credibility. And, and that's something that, that helps in my side work and my freelance work you know, to kind of get my work out there. But, you know, I, I think that in general, if you're a, a, a talented photographer and you work at a large newspaper for 10, 20 years, you're somehow going to win a Pulitzer Prize. You know, you're going to kind of work, right, to, you know, like almost every New York Times photographer, Washington Post photographer, LA Times photographer, Chicago Tribune photographer, at some point has, has been part of a Pulitzer Prize. So it, it is it is a fun club to be in, but I am definitely on the lower realms of the ranks of uh, Pulitzer Prize winners, but, but I'll take it. You know, it's like, you know, I'm not going to lift I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth, I guess. So, so to make a recap, you were part of a team uh, who reported government failures concerning some regulation in the area of, as you said, cribs that are beds for babies, car seats and toys. So if I understood correctly, your job was basically to take photos of the injured, the victims and also of uh, the objects. Yes, exactly. That's what it was. And, um, uh, you know, and the great thing about that story, which is much better than, than my little ego boosting Pulitzer Prize on my resume, is that it actually 
prompted legislation to be written that that you know outlawed a lot of these toys and and kind of cribs and things like that. So it really saved lives. And um, so you know that's what I'm most proud of is that I was part of a project that actually saved lives, and that there's children who are now adults, you know, who you know are living because of this story that I was part of. So that's that's the the most amazing part of the story to work on it. And what's very fascinating, uh, Scott Strazanti, is that at the beginning, it was supposed to be uh, Peter Souza in your role of a photographer. Yeah, it's kind of funny how things work. It's, um, you know, when I was at the Chicago Tribune, I had the same role there as I do at the San Francisco Chronicle, where I photograph everything, you know, I photograph sports and news and features and, and food shoots and, you know, whatever. And uh, at the time, Pete Souza was between his his gig photographing the White House of Ronald Reagan and photographing Barack Obama. So at that time, he was a Chicago Tribune staff photographer based in Washington, D.C. And so I think when they came up with this idea for this great investigative story, they were like, let's get Pete on this. And and as it turned out, to my advantage, um, Pete was too busy doing other projects. And so he said, no, I don't have time to work on this. And so they asked me if I wanted to work on it. And I was like, absolutely. So it is kind of funny that, you know, Pete... Um, you know, moved, you know, you know, Pete was, could have been won this Pulitzer Prize, but, you know, he just happened to be too busy. And um, a couple of years after I won um, the Pulitzer Prize at, at the, uh, at the Tribune, um, I was offered a job um, in Denver at the Rocky Mountain News, and which now has since folded, which is sad. But um, I, I had to turn down the job at the Rocky Mountain News because at the time I was a single dad, Um, raising my children, and I just couldn't move them to Colorado. And um, so my friend Todd Heisler, who is an amazing photographer, who's, near, who's now at the New York Times, um, got hired for the Rocky Mountain News job. And he was given a story, you know, six months later, that become a Pulitzer Prize winner, where he documented um, families being notified of their loved ones being killed in the Iraq war. And, and so it's kind of funny. I always joke with Todd that if I hadn't turned down that job, that would have been my Pulitzer Prize. And he's lucky it turned down the job. So it's kind of funny how, you know, all these little kind of, you know, things change and A, you know, happening makes B happen. And, and so it was nice that, that Pete it was too, too busy to, uh, to work on this project. Right, you know, or you might not be talking to me because you wouldn't have been impressed by the Pulitzer. You know? <laughs> And then in 2014, with a Pulitzer Prize in your pocket, uh, you decided <laughs> to go to the West Coast, precisely in San Francisco, to get more sun. The sun is the best source <laughs> of, of vitamin D. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, the San Francisco thing is interesting, too. It, once again, how just like fate happens. Um, each year, um, National Geographic has a, a, this very prestigious invite-only photo seminar in Washington, D.C., and, and I, I'm, I've been lucky enough to, to have been invited to it the last five or six years. And so in um, January of 2014, um, I was attending the seminar, and after the seminar, they have a little cocktail hour, and so you kind of flit around and you talk with all these other photographers. And um, at some point during this cocktail hour, after a couple beers, you know, I had to use the bathroom. And so as I'm headed to the bathroom, um, my friend Todd Heisler, who got the job at the Rocky Mountain News instead of me, um, was headed out the door. And he saw me coming. He was like, hey, Scott, do you want to go out to dinner with me? I'm going out with some of my old Denver colleagues. And I was like, yeah, I got no plans. So 
you know, I did my business, got my coat, and we headed out to dinner. And one of his colleagues at the Rocky Mountain News was Judy Waldron, who at the time was the director of photography at the San Francisco Chronicle. And I'd ne- I'd never met Judy. Um, she's an amazing person, and she also was a great photographer and, and was at the San Francisco Chronicle. So after you know a couple of glasses of wine at dinner, you know, Judy was like, hey, Hey, he's Strazanti. How do you like Chicago? You know, how's Chicago treating you? I'm like, eh, it's okay. I'm not, you know, she's like, why don't you come work for me in San Francisco? And I was like, okay. And, and that was pretty much it. And they had a job opening and, you know, I had to go through the process of being interviewed. Um, but Judy was definitely, you know, Judy wanted me to take the job. And, and so then a couple months later, after, you know, a couple interviews, they're like, if you want to come to San Francisco, the job is yours. And I'm like, absolutely. And so my daughter at the time, uh, was a, a student at UCLA, and my son was living with me. Um, and so we packed up the car, and we moved to San Francisco. I'd never spent much time here, and just kind of, you know, you know, arrived. And um, it was really a great move, and I love California. I, you know, San Francisco, what a crazy, amazing city. It, you know, it is just um, a visual dream. It, it has everything you could ever want as a photographer and as a, a person living in the area, too. It's so... You know, I, I never have regretted uh, moving to San Francisco, especially at this time of year when I check the weather in Chicago. I'm, I'm very happy that I'm here. If we think of it more deeply, not only the sun uh, is the best way of vitamin D, but it's also your best source, uh, Scott, of light uh, for your pictures. <laughs> you literally work together. Yes. Yeah. You know, the California light is special. And, um, you know, and I, one of the things that, you know, I started in Chicago was doing street photography and just kind of chasing the light. And, and, and San Francisco is like one of the best street photography cities in the world. It just has incredible architecture and the people are unique and the neighborhoods are all stacked upon each other. I always kind of say that San Francisco is kind of like if you put New York into a trash compactor. You just kind of smashed it down because everything is just right around the corner. You go from Union Square, which is this beautiful plaza, and then right up the street is the financial district. And then you to the left is Chinatown. And right on the other side of that is North Beach, which is the Italian enclave. And then you go a little bit farther, you're at Fisherman's Wharf. And and so I have these regular street photography routes that I take and and just kind of document, you know, just the people and And the pandemic the last year has really, you know, kind of, you know, as a photographer, it's kind of weird talking about the pandemic because we think of it in in, in visual terms and what does it mean for my photography? So I'm not trying to, you know, to discount the incredible loss that has come with it and and the financial ruin that people have gone through. But photographically, the pandemic has, you know, added this interesting layer to my street photography work. You know, first it was the empty streets. And then, you know, everyone wearing masks and still a lot of stores are boarded up in downtown San Francisco. You know, whoever, you know, invested in plywood a year ago is definitely a rich person now. But, you know, you know, so it's just, you know, I love observing things and and I I enjoy big cities and and just seeing how they look. And and so um, one of the things I've done with my street photography is um, I collected images, you know, like when I would go on trips um, with the Tribune or the Chronicle, you know, and I would do street photography in other cities around America. And, and that turned into a book called Shooting from the Hip. And um, that was my second book. And so I, uh, you know, 
I, I enjoy having side projects to my newspaper photography. You know, if you asked the average photographer out there, what do you know of Scott Strasanti's work? They really wouldn't get to my newspaper work to the third or fourth thing because, you know, I think I'm known for my street photography. I'm known for this long-term project called Common Ground um, that I documented um, a piece of land in suburban Chicago as a trans you transform from a farm to a subdivision. And I, I chronicled that over um, two decades. And and so I, that personal project work that's so important to me has become the best work that I've done. And even though I love working for newspapers and I love the work I've done there, you know, I kind of feel like I'm always curious and I'm always trying to do more. And I love having control of things I work on. So personal projects are perfect because I can work at them at my own speed. I can photograph what I think is the story instead of having to follow a writer. And so, you know, that's something about my career is that, you know, probably 20 years in, a light bulb came on and I realized, you know, hey, I, I don't have to just do what people tell me to do. I can kind of, you know, forge my own path. And and that's definitely what I've done. And, and at this point, you know, I have so many photographic balls being juggled up in the air. I love doing fashion photography. I have, you know, you mentioned earlier about my fine art photography on the ocean, and then I still do street photography, and then I have my newspaper work, and, you know, the the Common Ground book that um, was published a couple years ago, you know, I still want to go back and, and finish that project because there's still one more chapter to be told. So it's just, you know, uh, you know, even though I don't feel like I'm a super busy person, you know, I'm always doing something, you know, so it's, it's definitely, you know, photography, if I hadn't have fallen into photography, you know, and I had just a regular normal job, I'm not sure exactly, you know, where my happiness level would be at, but it definitely wouldn't be at where it is now, which is really high. Concerning your uh, second book called Shooting from the Hips, uh, the title is an expression that means to act uh, recklessly, to react impulsively uh, without consideration of the effect. And it's also reference for uh, the app that you are using to take picture, which is called uh, Ipstamatic. Ipstamatic, yeah. 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 So um, back when I was at the Chicago Tribune, um, that was back in the days when you people were doing blogs. And so um, I started doing a blog, kind of my daily journaling of my photography. And um, I just started street photography, so I named the blog Shooting from the Hip. So my, the first incarnation of my Shooting from the Hip was at the Chicago Tribune. It was a blog that I did. And then when I decided to do a book, you know, I threw around some some ideas for what the book would be. I think it was like, you know, United Streets of America. I had all these other kind of name ideas. And then I just kind of decided to go with my branding of shooting from the hip. And, um, and yeah, and, and it not only is just kind of um, the idea of what I do, it also is literally what I do. Because when I photograph with my iPhone, um, when I walk down the street, I'm holding my iPhone at my waist, you know, kind of at my hip. And so I'm shooting people unawares. And, and I know a lot of people might think, you know, who are not in the photographic world, that that's kind of creepy, that or it's kind of wrong that I walk down the street and I photograph people deceptively and they don't know that they're being photographed. But, you know, my you know idea is that I, I want photographs of pure reality. I don't want it to be tainted by my presence. And as a newspaper photographer, a lot of times, 
people know I work for the newspaper. They see a photographer with big cameras and big lenses. And so they change their behavior. You know, they'll, they'll do something that isn't natural just to kind of play up to the camera or they'll be shy. So they won't do what they normally would do. Um, so with my street photography, I think I'm kind of rebelling against my newspaper mind. And I'm just walking down the street, kind of walking in and out of moments and situations and photographing them without any, you know, influence of me on them. And and so that's what I love about it is that I'm photographing while I'm walking. It's kind of a free flowing process. I'm not really stopping to set up a moment or a scene like I would for my newspaper work. And it for me, you know, not having control of the composition, you know, not looking through the frame and making sure everything's in the right place. I think I get these interesting photographs that I wouldn't have if my brain was controlling them because I think my brain is very regimented and I'm very, you know, I want order and I want things to be fit perfectly into the, the, the rectangle. But with the Hipstamatic app on my iPhone, you know, I'm, you know, just kind of free flowing, you know, letting kind of serendipity take over. And that's one of my, you know, things that I love about it is it's times I don't feel like it's my work. I feel like it just is kind of happening and I'm kind of a conduit um, for the photographic image. And so it, it definitely is something that I really enjoy doing. And, and I kind of go up and down. Sometimes I'll do it, you know, hardcore for a month or so, and then I just won't do it for a while. And, but it's always nice having it kind of in my, you know, back pocket when I need a little photographic boost. And, and one of the cool things about Hipstamatic, which is an app on my phone. And, uh, you know, you can kind of do basic or really kind of, you know, technical things. I just like the basic push a button and a photo comes out, um, you know, it comes out as a square. Um, and I did so much hipstamatic work and posted on my, my Instagram that the people at hipstamatic actually created a film and a lens with my name and they called the lens Scott S lens. And the, and, and that the film is like this infrared film, you know, and so it's called the Bucktown pack, which is a neighborhood in Chicago. So it was like such a great honor to like have a lens named after myself because one of the first um, hipstamatic lenses that they sold was the John S lens. So the Scott S lens is kind of a play off of that. And, and, and the funny thing is that even though I have a lens named after myself, I probably only use it two or three times a year. You know, I have another, another combination that I actually prefer, which is Lowy lens and a black key super green film. If any of you are hipstamatic nerds out there, like I am. Um, so but it's definitely, I'm a creature of habit. You know, I've been, you know, f- do, using um, the iPhone with the Hipstamatic app ever since 2011 when um, at the time working for the Chicago Tribune, I just had a BlackBerry phone. And so I borrowed my daughter's iPhone and I downloaded the Hipstamatic app on a trip to Washington, D.C. And I uh, just kind of walked around and just fell in love with the look of it and just being able to, to work with the iPhone. And so, you know, you know, it's something I've only been doing for you know eight years now, but you know it feels like in my head that I, you know I've always been doing it. So it, it definitely is another creative outlet, and I just always kind of feel like I always need creative outlets and, and continue to evolve. Even though I'm a creature of habit, I still want to kind of evolve. And um, you know, I'm stuck now in the, the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram kind of circle. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to dip my toe in TikTok because I feel like I'm getting to be a little too old and, and I'll just leave that to my kids and to, to be on t- TikTok. But, you know, if it became a time where I felt like it would be a good thing for me to be on TikTok for my, for my work, you know, maybe I will go there. But at this point, you know, 
I'm kind of happy with my little regiment. This is very ironic, uh, Scott Strazenti, because you want to capture real life, the reality, but on the other side, you're using, as you said, very heavy black and white filters that can seems very unreal. Yeah, it, it is kind of, you know, you know, like I said before, I'm like rebelling against myself because in the newspaper world, we're not allowed to do any sort of editing of our pictures or manipulation or change what the world looks like. And um, with the um, the hipstamatic, you know, there are very heavily filtered apps that, um, or filters you can use on there. Um, the one that I've settled on now, which is the Lowy lens, which was actually named after photographer uh, Ben Lowy. Um, it, it's, it's one of the, the least kind of kinky setup. You know, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it looks as close to shooting normal, like black and white film out of a big camera. You know, so I, I tried, but, but when I first started out, you're right. I had some of these funky you know, filters and there'd be like, you know, big scratches they would put on there, really weird borders and stuff. And so I definitely went through this phase where I went through this heavily filtered look and, You know, at the time I thought it was really cool, but now I look back on it and I'm like, oh my God, what an idiot. You know, those just look so ridiculous. And um, so, yeah, but I do feel that, you know, you know, my hipstamatic works, like I'm a big contest enterer in, the, in, in photojournalism circles and you cannot enter a hipstamatic photo in the pictures of the year competition because it's considered, you know, you know, not reality. And so I've totally come to grips with that, um, but I still enjoy doing it. And so it, It definitely, you know, was a little rebellious for myself and, you know, I'm, you know, but it, you know, it, it is what it is, you know, but I do, I do understand that irony. It is, it is kind of funny. And concerning your first book called uh, Common Ground, even if everyone say to not judge a book by its cover, I really like the cover because there is like the two words, common and ground, uh, facing each other as if they were gazing at each other. Yeah, no, I've, um, you know, it, it takes a village for a lot of these projects. And, and that book was designed by uh, Deb Peng Davis, um, who is a designer who, um, is, you know, taught at Syracuse for a while. And I think she just is moving now to someplace else. I, I, I lost touch, but she's really a great talent. And she designed that book. And, and I, you know, I'm the type of person is when I'm collaborating with some, that, someone I just let them do their thing, <clears throat> excuse me. And I, I don't really try to influence what they do. And, and so Deb came back with, with a design idea and I thought it was brilliant and, and it, it looked great. And, and her husband, Mike Davis, who um, was the National Geographic photo editor, he was a, a White House photo editor, and then also a, a taught at Syracuse. He photo edited that book and he was an editor I worked with back in 2000 when i won my national photographer of the year award and he edited my portfolio that year the year i won and so i hired him to edit common ground and and so you know for me i i, I love having these projects where i can work with people that i used to work with and bring them in and and lynn warren who um, used to work in national geographic also she's one of my favorite people in the world she did all the writing for both of my books and wrote the captions and common ground and wrote some essays um, for shooting from the hip. So there's nothing like working with your friends on these projects. Um, but yeah, I was very pleased with how common ground came out and, and I, I really love the, 
you know, the title on the front of it, it looks great. So to make a resume of this book, Inside Common Ground, you challenge the question of the meaning of home because the people you have pictured, some of them have uh, lost their home. Yeah, so the, the, the idea of the book was, well, it, there never was like a pre-plan. It just kind of happened organically. But it started in 1994 when I was working at a newspaper called The Daily South Town in suburban Chicago. And I was sent out to a farm to do a just a quick one-hour photograph on Harlow and Jean Cagwin. They were, at the time, Harlow was 71 and Jean was 62. And they were childless. And they were running... Um, a, a farm that raised Angus beef cattle. And the story was on, I think, just people raising animals in Homer Township, which was a, an area near my newspaper. And as I was leaving the farm after photographing them for an hour, being the city kid growing up on the south side of Chicago, I asked, hey, can I come back sometime and, and photograph some more just for my own, you know, kind of personal delight? And, and they were like, sure. And so I started going back every month or so And then as my kids were growing older, I'd bring them to the farm and show them the cows and, and things like that. And um, so that was, you know, a, a period of maybe two or three years where I just kind of were becoming friends with the Cagwins. And I, I wasn't photographing a lot, but I was continuing to visit. And then in 1998, I moved from the Daily South Town to a paper called the Herald News in Joliet, Illinois, which I mentioned earlier. And the, the farm was actually right outside of Joliet. So when the photo editor there asked me if I had any stories I wanted to work on, I said, oh, well, I know these cattle farmers. And, and so then I started photographing Jean and Harlow for the newspaper. And um, I had asked, because I'd already started the project, if I could retain the copyright because I you know, wanted it to be a project that I was working on that I, that I owned. And it's the only time I've ever done that. And because and most times when you work for a newspaper, they own the images and they can control what they do with them. But I asked if I could own the images and, and they, you know, they didn't think it was going to anything special. So they're like, sure, that's fine. So I continue to work on um, Gene and Harlow's story while I was at the Herald News. And at that point, Harlow's health was deteriorating. And there were rumors that he was going to sell the farm because a lot of farms in the area were being sold to uh, subdivision developers because suburban sprawl coming out to, from Chicago, you know, people were moving from the city way out to the suburbs. And um, when I moved to the Chicago Tribune in 2001, I was still working on the project. And then I got to the Tribune and I asked the, the editor there, hey, I, this story I've been working on, is it okay if I retain copyright? If you guys want to run it, you can. And so it ended up running in the Chicago Tribune Sunday Magazine twice, two versions of the story. Um, so I, I photographed Gene and Harlow from 1994 until July 2nd, 20, no, July 2nd, 2002. And, and on that day, um, Harlow and Gene moved out of their house. And like five minutes later, the subdivision developers knocked it down. And so I have this amazing photo of Harlow sitting in his front yard on a felled tree with his head down as the home that he'd lived in the past 75 years was being knocked to the ground. And And so at that point, I'd photographed them for eight years, and I thought it was a complete thought. But as the subdivision started being built on their farmland, I kind of thought that there was a story to be told. And, and Gene and Harlow had moved to another place, and I visited them occasionally, but I was more interested in what was happening with their, their land. And, and so it took a while um, to kind of come up with what I was going to do with it. 
and I visited and I, I met some families and I actually asked one if I could document them and I, they agreed, but I just never followed through for some reason. So then in March of 2007, so a good five years after the Cagwins had left, I was giving a talk at a, a small college outside of Chicago. It was a photo class that was a combination of teenagers and adults. And and I'd had a, a, like a fo- 50 photos of the farm that I would show when I would get presentations. And so at this talk, I showed the 50 photos of the farm. And at the end of the talk, a woman raised her hand and said, hi, uh, my name's Amanda. I live in that subdivision. I was like, really? I'm like, oh, you know, can I come visit you? And she was like, sure. And so I went and she lived at the end of a cul-de-sac called Cinnamon Court. Um, Her and her husband, Ed, had four children. Three of them were triplets. They had a big black dog that looked like a cow. And I was like, this is amazing. So I started photographing um, at their house. And on my second visit, I photographed um, their oldest son, Ben. He was wrestling with his cousin, CJ, in the front yard with with a jump rope. And... I, I edited those photos later in the day, and it reminded me of a photo I'd taken of the farmer, Harlow Cagwin, wrestling with a calf, and he had a rope all tangled around the calf. And, and so I thought I could put those two photos together as a pairing or a diptych and kind of tell the story of the, the transition from farm to subdivision in diptychs. And at that point, it became really easy, and I started seeing moments in the subdivision that reminded me of moments I'd photographed on the farm. And I just started playing around and putting pairings together. And that eventually um, became a four-page story in National Geographic. Less than a year after I started photographing the subdivision, um, a group, um, I mean, a company called Media Storm run by Brian Storm, who's a brilliant mind. Um, he did a, a seven-minute video on the project. And then it became my first book, Common Ground. Um, and I'm still continuing to photograph on and off whenever I go back to Chicago. Um, Ed and Amanda, unfortunately, got divorced. And three um, triplets are going to be graduating from high school um, next year. They're juniors in high school. And so when they graduate from high school, Amanda is going to sell the house and move out. And so I'm going to be there to document the final days of Amanda and her family living in that house and then moving out. And then I'll probably make a, a bunch of pairings of of Harlow and Jean leaving their house and Amanda and her children leaving their house. And then I finally think that this story will be done, you know, 28 years after it started. So um, it's definitely a thing where, you know, I never thought it would last that long, um, but it just, you know, kind of happened. And, and I think it's a good advice to, to photographers to, you know, you don't have to have great ideas. You just have to photograph a lot. And, you know, just make sure that you collect photos. You know, if, if you wanted to go out wherever you lived and just photograph the front of buildings or houses and make prints of those photographs and put them away and bring them out in 30 years, everyone would be astounded and say, wow, that is amazing. And so you could have a book because whenever I see photos from the 50s or the 60s, it doesn't matter how bad technically they are or, or the lack of compositional skills that the photographer had. Just seeing another you know, part of you know, time is just amazing. So you know, I always encourage young photographers to, to save their work and to kind of be thinking 10, 20, 30 years in the future instead of just a week in the future. 
So Scott Strazenti, what I found very impressive is that, as you said, all along your career, you have built very strong relationship with some humans, <laughs> human relationships. Yeah, no, it's like, that's the part of the job I love is that I, I get to meet so many people. And, you know, I always feel so lucky to be photographing people. And I feel like I'm serving them. And, and so when I meet a, a people that I'm going to do a photo story on, I always like to, to, to really kind of purposely sit on the floor when I first meet them, because I want them to feel they're above me. I want them to feel, you know, you know, both literally and figuratively that they are above me just so they know that I'm not there to kind of use them or to do something for my advantage, that I'm there to honor them and to just kind of photograph their real life. And, and I feel that, you know, for some reason, my personality um, really kind of um, works well with the documentary photography field because people feel comfortable around me. And, you know, maybe I tend to mirror back themselves. I listen to what people have to say. I'm interested in what they have to say. And I think that's a, a lot of, you know, what it is in storytelling is that people want their story told and, and that if you just let them tell it at their pace, you know, it'll be, you know, fascinating. And I, you know, that's the one thing, like I go through these phases where I'm so interested in people. I just want to put a white backdrop out on the street and photograph every single person as they walk by. Because it just for me is just the human being is just everyone is unique and different. And I love photo essays that are held together by a theme that it's like people who you know are part of subcultures where, you know, whether it be, you know, beer vendors at, at baseball games or postal delivery men or, or just whatever it is, just just I love documenting a subculture of people where they're, they're the same, they have the same thread, but they have that unique individual kind of piece to it. And, and everyone is different, even if they are all the same. And that's what I really enjoy. And I think that was kind of the theme in Common Ground, where it's like, no matter how different we are, really at the core, we are all the same. And I think that's has always been my thought process for for every person in the world and i treat them all equally and you know i'm interested in 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 their life you know no matter how boring they think it is in fact you and i were talking about it yesterday is is it this book that you had 1000 extra copy of yeah um so both of my books were were published by a man named warren winter who owns um psg Um, publishing. It's based in Chicago. And earlier this year, he kind of sent me an SOS saying, you know, I have to downsize, you know, the pandemic has really hurt the business, I'm going to have to move out of my warehouse. So I have, you know, 2000 of your books sitting here. Um, you know, do you want them? If not, I'm probably just going to put them in a dumpster. And I was like, okay, well, how much would it cost? And he said it would cost $1,000 to ship them out to me in California. And I said, okay, And so one day, two pallets of books got dropped in my driveway. And, and uh, I, I put a plea out on Facebook, you know, that, that, that these books had arrived. And if people wanted to help me out and buy a couple, I would greatly appreciate it. And so I've been able to, since then, maybe seven, eight months ago, sell about half of the books that I have. Um, so they're all kind of stored away in different parts of the house and in, in you know, sheds and things like that. And so if, uh, if you're interested in a copy of Common Ground or Shooting from the Hip, um, I can give you a special deal. 
Um, I've been selling them for $35 for both of them or $20 each. And um, you can uh, reach out, reach out to me on uh, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram on direct messaging and be more than happy to give information on a couple of, uh, which I think are pretty good photo books that are at a pretty good price just so I can clear up some space. So, so my uh, fiance doesn't get too mad at me. And since then, these two books has become bestseller because of this. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. On the Scott Strazani bestseller list, they're number one and two, you know, so, but it's, uh, you know, there's still our websites for the book shooting from the hip, the book, um, dot com, I believe, and common ground, the book.com. Um, but those, those are the regular high price, uh, publisher price. So if you want a copy, reach out to me directly and you'll get the special deal. Thank you so much, Scott Strazenti, for your time. And you're welcome on VH Berries anytime in the future. <laughs> uh, Victor, it's been, you know, one of the great things about having success in photography is that people like you take interest in my work and I get to meet people like you. And I guarantee you we're going to be friends now. And, you know, I've really enjoyed this and, and getting to know you. You're, you're a unique, fabulous individual. And I can't wait to see uh, what happens in your career. And, You know, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.